got not one wrestler here. We're going to talk about an entire family here on Volume 35 of Classic Wrestling Memories. We're going to talk the Armstrong family. Bullet Bob Armstrong passed away a number of weeks ago at the age of 80, so we thought it appropriate to talk about the entire Armstrong family. And once again, joining me from a nice soft padded cell in South Kakalaki, my co-host for Classic Wrestling Memories, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. I'm looking forward to this particular episode. We've talked about doing the Armstrongs for a long time. We just never got around to it, and then unfortunately we lost Bob, and we kind of figured, well, now's probably the best time to do it. I, I have, I fortunate in my career, was able to meet all members of the Armstrong family and have interaction with them, and just great, great people, and were helpful to me when I first started out. So I, I'm looking forward to this one. I want to apologize. It took us so long to get around to it. I want to apologize that it's taken us so long to get this up because we've both had some, some personal issues. It's the holidays. It's kind of delayed our recording schedule, but we're here now. And we're going to talk the Armstrong. Absolutely. And really, I think the, the best way to do this is we'll start out with the father, Bullet Bob, and then we'll just kind of go through the sons, uh, the brothers as, as we go on. So uh, a lot of fans know, anybody who has followed the Armstrong's career, obviously their real last name is not Armstrong, it's a stage name, it, it is a ring name. Bob Armstrong was born Joseph Melton James. He is tried and true Georgia, born in 1939, uh, and he first saw wrestling as a child and served our country as a United States Marine in the early 60s, was a firefighter after that. But during that time, that's really when he got his first real training does that sound right to you yeah my understanding was i think he was in high school when he started training it's kind of funny because bob was not a flamboyant he was he was a blue collar like you said he was like you said he was a firefighter he kind of he kind of what's the word i'm looking for i don't want to say emote but he kind of really put that that persona out there but i think that was part of his success was he just he seemed like the tough guy next door. So you could relate to him as a fan because he seemed like your neighbor who was probably the star of his high school football team. But what's so funny about that is the wrestler that he saw that when he was a kid that he's like, hey, I want to do this, was Gorgeous George, one of the most flamboyant wrestlers of all time. <laughs> so it's, it, it, I guess you just never know. I, I, I like to pick at you a little bit, Seth, because a lot of people – outside the business, but our fans will say, well, if I was a wrestler, I'd do this, I'd do that. And I always tell you, you don't know that. Right. You have to go whatever works best for you. You may be attracted to something that is nothing like what you're able to do or what you look like with your God-given build, facial, whatever. And I don't know if Bob ever wanted to be flamboyant, but it was one of the most flamboyant guys that said, hey, I want to do this, and then he's this real meat and potatoes kind of wrestler. I think that's a strange dichotomy, but I, I digress. Yeah, I think you're right, because the type of baby faces that I tend to gravitate to, that I tend to relate to, are the kind of no-nonsense lawful good. And really, you look at two heroic, at least in my book, professions that you can have. One is serving our country in the military, and another is being a firefighter, because in either one of those jobs— you could wake up and it's your last day and you won't know until, until <laughs> boom, that's it. So, And those, Bob did both. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so those are two very honorable professions, which makes, in my book, you a natural baby face. Now, I say this about the lawful good baby face being the type that I gravitate to. To give you examples, people like Bret Hart. 
people like Diamond Dallas Page when he was a baby face. Right, Ricky Steamboat. Yes, exactly. But two of my favorite wrestlers of all time are Randy Savage and Sting, who definitely are were... Tween, tweeners at best. <laughs> right, right. You know, even as a baby face, Savage was probably chaotic good, and Sting was, you know, his most popular run was when he had that dark side as the crow, which it kind of still has right. to this day. But I think you get what I'm saying. Yeah. I think the surfer sting era, and I've always felt, I know we're here to talk about the Armstrongs, but I've always felt that sting was really miscast in that era of WCW because it's, it's almost John Cena before we saw John Cena. They wanted to make him this corporate guy. And when he was a little rough around the edges, when he first got to, Crockett and then Turner from the UWF buyout. I liked that babyface sting better. That was this young, exuberant guy that was a little rough around the edges instead of the the say your prayers, take your vitamins, Hulk Hogan kind of. And they kind of went with that. And but it is what it is. Right, right. But getting back to Bob, he made the firefighter kind of part of his gimmick. Not necessarily that he was a firefighter like he would come to the ring with like the hose and the ladder or anything like that. But he was billed right. as being a fighter fighter. Now, I don't know where the name Bob Armstrong came from, but his first real push in a territory came in the mid-1960s, which would have been in Savannah, Georgia, which that would have been the Georgia territory run by Paul Jones, right? Right. Not the Paul Jones, the wrestler from Mid-Atlantic. Correct. The Paul Jones that, well, he was a wrestler too, but he was a wrestler like in the 30s. <laughs> and he was the the longtime promoter of, of the Georgia territory. And this... When you're talking about he he would be billed, he was from he would bill himself from Cobb County because that's where he was from, which is Marietta. And when we get to the Suns later, they all would would bill themselves from Marietta. For those that don't know, Marietta is a suburb of Atlanta, just north of Atlanta. It's the same place like uh, Xavier Woods and Cody Rhodes and several other guys I can think of that are in the business now are from. Marcus Alexander Bagwell was from there. Sprayberry High School is the high school. Yeah, and they all... build uh, the big boss man, Ray Trailer, from Cobb County, at least when he was in his run with Vince, yeah. Right, and I th- I don't think he was from that part of Georgia originally, but I could be wrong. But 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 the point is that there's a high school there called Sprayberry that has benefited from the fact that back in the days of Georgia Championship Wrestling and then WCW, Marietta's kind of an upper-class suburb where do you think a lot of the wrestling stars that lived in and based in Atlanta lived? It's the Marietta area. And then their <laughs> kids got involved in sports and wrestling at the high school. So Sprayberry, Sprayberry wasn't as big as Robindale, Minnesota, and the high school there, but you get the idea. It was kind of the, the same thing down south in there. Right, right. It would be where the Georgia athletes came from. Right. And that started long before the, the Turner stuff because that's where Bob was from. Now, Savannah's in another part of the state. But Savannah is one of the larger cities in Georgia, and Georgia is a strange place. It, I've always described Georgia as a redneck wagon wheel. What I mean by that is Atlanta's like smack dab in the middle of the state, and it's very much a contemporary big city, much in, not, not dissimilar from York or Chicago where you are, L.A. It just has a southern mm-hmm. flair. But right. then there's all these little spokes that come off the, that, that center center part of the wagon wheel, and it's real redneck. It's real – and, I mean, it's real rural with, with medium-sized towns at best. That – think Dukes of Hazard. They're supposedly from outside of Atlanta. So, yeah, it, it's 
Athens, where I went to school, University of Georgia is like that, or Savannah, Augusta, where the, the Masters Golf Tournament is played. They're, they're not big cities, but that's pretty much the whole state of Georgia. And this all, this all started because, you must remember, this is the 1960s and 70s. We're smack dab in the middle of kayfabe. We're smack dab in the middle of the territories. And a bigger geographical territory like a Georgia one that unusual to run two towns in one night with an A crew and a B crew so you could get over in one part of a state but not be known in the other part of the state, even though it was the same territory. That even involved to the point of, I don't remember it in Georgia. I think maybe Georgia had one, like maybe Savannah was the city. I know they had it in Memphis in the Tennessee territories where you'd actually have a city champion as opposed to, a ter- to the territory's regional champion. Like because in Georgia that was the national heavyweight champion here, and the Carolinas it was the U.S. heavyweight belt, and Florida it was the Florida State heavyweight champion. Well, they literally had some of these small southern towns that were part of a bigger territory. They'd have a city champion. They didn't necessarily have a belt. I think Memphis's had like a vest, if I remember right, like a, a mm-hmm. vest you wore to the ring. That's that's very very odd to think of nowadays with the explosion of the internet and overlay. But I think you can understand why that probably worked back in that time. Can't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. Even in my time in in high school, if there was a championship for whatever sport, football or whatever, the winners got jackets. Right. I figure it's that type of thing. Yeah. And so back to, to Bob with, with the firefighter thing and what I was talking about earlier, I know growing up in this, that part of the world, Here's this guy who's a big barrel chested, and when I, I'm going to say that a lot because to me, you hear that term a lot about the build of older wrestlers. Bob Armstrong was like, if you looked up barrel chested in the in the dictionary, they would have Bob Armstrong's picture into it. I think right. you can agree with that. <laughs> He's just this big, broad shouldered, big chested guy. Never, never was was like super duper cut, but worked out and we'll get to where his workout led later on that actually has a very important significance in his career but here was this guy that like i said he was big and and he had a southern draw because he was from georgia and i think i've brought this up before that's just the guy that the fans are going to gravitate to back in the days of kayfabe he looked like he could be your local fire fire chief you know Yeah, who don't want you for him, the- right? Or, or, or like, like this, like the high school football coach. This guy that we kind of put on a pedestal as a community. He talked like those people. He looked like those people. He understood their their culture because he was part of it. He was just naturally going to be a baby fan. He wasn't going to be this guy. And he, like I said, he was a marine before he was a firefighter. Just everything was right there, and and his success would grow and his fame would grow that has a lot to do with it and if you and i've said it before if you didn't live in the territories it's hard to understand but back then before you had cable television before you had really the only national television was the news and then like the shows on primetime if you saw someone on television and they weren't national they were just local they were still a star and they were a local star because you saw this guy on your television every week every saturday he was on your tv but then he talked like you, and he looked like you, but he was in better shape, and he understood your culture. That's just naturally going to be a guy you're going to root for. Yeah, it makes sense. And throughout most of his career, he was a babyface. And if I understand it right, Bob actually preferred being a babyface. I know there's a lot of talent out there, a lot of workers, where they might only say it behind closed doors, but they actually kind of prefer being a heel because it can be more fun. Most of them say it out front. They don't hide that fact. 
But there there are a few out there, again, like Bret Hart, who seem to prefer being baby faces. And he was effective at it. So why wouldn't he prefer it? Well, a, a lot of that for old timers comes to the fact that traditionally speaking, now every rule has variables and, and can be broken, can be different, is the heel usually calls the match. So I think that's part of it is they just like to have that sense of control. It's, 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 it's being in charge and you're not going to call a spot that you're afraid you can't do because you're calling it. Makes sense, yeah. I, I think there, like I said, there are exceptions to that rule. You might have a longtime veteran like a Bob Armstrong or an Antonio Inoki or a Ricky Steamboat. It's been in business 20 years, and they're working a guy who's good, but he hasn't been in business that long, and he's still called the match because he's the veteran. Right. right. I to got give, to that To give point. a modern example, somebody like a Randy Orton who's just mm-hmm. been around for 20 years. I got to that point at the end of my career. Even though I was a baby face, I was almost always in the ring with somebody who hadn't been around as long as me. And if the promoter and the, or the booker didn't flat out say it, I would just tell the kid, I'm calling this man. Okay. <laughs> you know, right. <laughs> most of them, you know, I'm not wanting to jerk about it. It was just, it's like, I've been around. I know what I can do. I know what I'm willing to do. Tell me your stuff and we'll, we'll just follow me, kid. But it'll be fine. And I was just doing the same thing that, vets had done to me earlier in my career just follow me kid i'll get you over so but bob i think probably was one of those guys even in his later in his career even though he's a baby face he was still he was still called the match because he was a veteran got to get over he knew how to get the heel over but now moving on in bob's career he was a top tag team baby face in georgia held titles with various partners but then a major shift in power happened because ray gunkel was the promoter in this area of Georgia, he died of a heart attack. And to make a long story short, because quite frankly, we could do an entire show on we need uh, Ray we need to do it we need, we need to do an entire show on 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 the the fallout from that the 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 Georgia War. You know, right. it's right. one of the most fascinating periods in wrestling history, and definitely shows the as you like to call it the CD underbelly of the wrestling business. Mm-hmm. Right, but that doesn't make it any less. Uh, I'm quite quite frankly. I'm surprised Dark Side of the Ring that Vice does hasn't done it yet. Uh, maybe because it did happen in the 70s. But I do think that eventually if they stick around long enough, they'll probably get around to it. Yeah, yeah. Because they've done stuff that's been older as well. Sure. But, yeah. But to make a long story short, Ray's Widow Ann started her own promotion and most of the wrestlers followed her to that promotion. Uh-huh. However, Bob stayed and as such got a bigger push. Now, Correct me if I'm wrong, Bill Watts took over around this time in the right. city of Georgia, right? Yeah, that's correct. And I think after Bill left is when Ole came in. But 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 Paul Jones was still alive. He still owned a share of the company. So I think he was the NWA affiliate. So it was a strange time because you had you had all the stars that you I just talked about you saw on TV every week go with this one, but she's not the NWA affiliate. So she's not she's this outlaw promotion, but to use the truest sense of the term outlaw promotion. And Bob was one of the few guys that stuck around that the people used to see it on TV. So the NWA would try would would help out Paul Jones and the NWA. They were so close. It was like I think they retained the name Georgia Championship Wrestling, and I think I think Ann Gunkel was like Championship Wrestling from Georgia. That's how close. But <laughs> it was, and there was there was argument that there was fights over syndication of television product. But Bob, being like you said, being one of the few that stayed, he was seen on TV. The NWA, other NWA promoters would help help out Paul Jones by sending him talent, but they weren't on TV all the time. Bob was one of the few that he had left that his fans had seen every week on television. So he's automatically. And let me say this: when I say that, I'm not saying that Bob didn't deserve the. Okay, 
I'm just saying he was a guy who deserved the push and and also lucky because of the circumstances. And right. there's something to be said for loyalty, too. And I'm sure in defense of the guys who went with Ann Gunkel, they felt they were being loyal to Ray's memory, too, as part of the reason they went with her. You know? right. right. And maybe in Bob's case, since he was working for Paul a few years before, maybe he was staying out of loyalty to Paul. Right. This is the point you've got to understand Bill Watts. He hasn't, I can't remember if this is before or after he's bought in. I think it's before he had bought into Leroy McGurk's territory in Mid-South. It was obvious from like this point on, Bill Watts intended to own and run his own territory. That was pretty, I I think, I I can't remember, I think it was right before this, he had his run as a heel in Florida. And and watching 80 Graham and what 80 Graham was doing was, I think, was what sealed Bill Watts' fate. And this is what I want to do. I want to own a territory and run my own territory. Right, right. And speaking of Bill Watts, a few years later, after running Georgia, he actually starts booking for Eddie Graham in Florida, or, or would that have been another area of Florida? No, that was it. That was it. That was it. Maybe, maybe that was what I was thinking. Maybe this is what gave him his taste, and then Florida, the Florida run after. I couldn't remember exactly where they fell, when they fell. Right. But, yeah. But we're late 60s, early 70s around right, this time, right. I think. And, and it would have been probably late 70s, early 80s when he st- really would have started Taking over Leroy McGurk's territory, yeah. And it was really in Florida where Bob started having major success as, as a single star. Once again, he was billed as the fighting fireman. Used Now he was using a lot of strikes and chops. And here's the thing. This, this is kind of funny when you, when, when, when you think about it. And anybody who's watched wrestling for more than probably 10 or, 10 or 15 years is going to understand this. He used a lot of strikes and chops. He went on a winning streak. He won all of his matches in five minutes or less. Holy wow, the guy gets over. <laughs> it's amazing how that works out, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Because you notice whenever you apply that format to somebody who's even just a decent worker, they tend to get over because people like rooting for a guy who just comes out, kicks butt, leaves, and that's it. You, you, you right. go through the list. Guys like Goldberg, guys like Samoa Joe, people like uh, that. Yeah, <laughs> they, they come out. They kick the crap out of somebody and leave. What's not to like? As great as Dusty was, as charismatic as Dusty was, Dusty, he oh, you never saw him lose on television, did you? Right. Everybody everybody rags on Hogan for the run he had for Vince in the 80s. How many times did you see Hogan lose? No. <laughs> the best commentary I ever heard on Hogan losing, and obviously I don't want to get on a tangent here, but I was listening to Brian and Vinny talk about the infamous 1988 main event where Andre quote unquote pinned Hogan for the title with the, the, the screw job mm-hmm. with the, the dual ref. You know, we, we, we talked about that on the Savage versus uh, DiBiase feud, but mm-hmm. the way they described that, it's like, what kind of world are we going to be in now with Hulk Hogan not as a champion? Is, is the sun going to come up tomorrow? Will, will there be food? Right. To go back even farther, we've talked about it before, the reaction of the crowd. You could hear a pin drop when Bruno lost clean to Ivan Koloff for the for the WWF title. Mm-hmm. Because why? Bruno never lost. That's why he was over. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing how that works out. Of course, at this time the, in Florida, uh, that was the home territory of the then world champion, Jack Briscoe. So this would lead to... Bob getting title shots against Jack Briscoe. Uh, I don't know if I can emphasize how big a deal that would have been in that era to get title shots in Florida against Jack Briscoe as the champion. Right. Uh, can you even begin to imagine that? Well, to 
try to explain things very briefly for people who don't know how the NWA worked back then, the world champion worked all over not just the country, but sometimes the world. So Mm -hmm. to have the NWA world champion come to your town, that's a big freaking deal. That would be like, you know, maybe a a world boxing match that's usually in Las Vegas or whatever. Like if they were to hold it in Aurora here or in Chicago, it would be a pretty Mm -hmm. big deal here. Right, right. Believe me, I know from from my time as a fan in the territory days, having the world champion call your call your territory his home. That was a that was a, a a bit of pride. There's a reason why to this day the Carolinas and Georgia and Virginia are still Flair country. Flair was our guy, and he was the world champion. It, you had a similar thing in Chicago when when CM Punk was the champion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How huge were the Von Erichs in Dallas? How big are the Hearts in 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 Calgary? It, it's just it, it, you draw pride as a territorial fan from having it. So that makes it even more amazing. When you consider the fact that Jack Briscoe, who was uh, he was a baby face, but he was I hate the term tweener, but that's kind of what the world champion was back then. He was either a flat out heel or he was a tweener because he would have to go into territories as we've talked about this before and make their local guy look good in defeat. And he wasn't always sure when he went into territory, was he going to be working their top baby face, their top heel? Right. Makes sense. And Jack was a babyface in Florida because he was there. But there, Bob's getting title shots as a babyface and getting over against Jack Briscoe in his home in his home territory. That's amazing when you th- and part of that would be Bob's incredible promos. Bob is we talk about when it comes to promos, we talk about the the memorable promos, the guys that are so bombastic and over the top, the Jim Cornettes, the Dusty Rhodes, the Ric Flairs, the Roddy Pipers, the Jerry Lawlers. Mm-hmm. That was not Bob Armstrong's style, but I wouldn't say he was any less of an effective promo than any of those guys. His was a very down-to-earth, back to what I was talking about, he had a southern drawl because he was from Georgia. He spoke in a very plain manner that people believed. In, the, in places like Florida and Georgia and Alabama. They're like, oh, wow, he talks our talk. He's one of us. Yeah, the closest I could think of maybe, at least for, for our generation, be like the, the, the few times where Arn Anderson was a babyface back in the day. He mm-hmm. kind of had that straight-talking, mm-hmm. you know, what you see is what you get type promo. And our, well, once again, ours from Georgia. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, just, it's a real matter-of-factly just very straight approach. There's not the great psychology that you would have in like a Jake Roberts promo. There's not the, 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 the quips and the funny comebacks, like in a Lawler or a Piper promo. There's not the preaching of a scene or a dusty, not the over the top of a Ric Flair Flair or a savage. Yeah, exactly. I can think of a lot of guys that have that style of promo, a guy like, like a, a Ricky steamboat or a Bret Hart, but his was at the next level. Them above. That's not a disrespect to Ricky or Brett. His was just at the next level. And so he had this barrel chest and he looked good and you wanted to cheer for him because he, he had this history as a firefighter and a Marine and he was on this winning streak. And then on top of that, oh, by the way, he could talk. That's that's the recipe for a guy that's going to be over. The, the way I heard it, I think it was in the Rise and Fall of WCW DVD that WWE put out a number of years ago, but they said that there were four things that you could have in the wrestling business, and if you have three of them, you're going to be successful. One was a look, one was to talk, 
and one was to go in the ring, and one was to understand the business. If you had three out of those four, you're going to be good. Bob, Bob like had all one four. Of those hel- yeah, he had all four. <laughs> he had all four. <laughs> he had all four. And it was – I cannot underscore to those that weren't around how over he was in the South in the 70s. He just is one of those guys who never really got the exposure Nash, partly because of timing, partly because I think he just – he had a family. He liked where he lived. He liked his community. And so don't think that he didn't travel around. He made multiple trips to Japan. In fact, all the Armstrongs enjoyed working in Japan. But this was home. The Georgia, the South was his home. He didn't want to stray very far from it. And why should he? He was making money, and he was top. He was one of the top good guys down here. Why would you want to leave? Right, exactly. In Georgia, Florida, the weather's nice all year round. Yeah, kids are in school that he likes. They've got friends. His wife's happy, bought a nice house. He's a respected member of the community. You'd be stupid to leave. Right, right. There's that type of thing of, well, why didn't he win a world title? Who knows if he was ever approached with that? I don't know if he ever would have worked on an international level as a champion. But even if he could have, it's one of those things you could understand him turning it down because I'm making enough money and not traveling as much. Oh, Ernie Ladd did that. Mm -hmm. Ernie Ladd. Was the guy like, well, people say, well, how come Ernie Ladd didn't have a world champion or didn't have a world title run? Because he was so over and he had the name from his football background, he could just pick and choose where he wanted to go. Bruiser Brody was like that. Hanson was like that. That was a, a luxury in the territory days. If you were a top guy and you didn't want to leave, you didn't have to. Right. And going back to the talk of the world champion, just to kind of put it in a local sense, if you're a fan of this guy that you see on your local TV every week and he's got a shot at the world champion and you go to that event, guess what? You're not cheering for the world champion. You want to see your no. guy win the world championship. Exactly. Bob was uh, sadly, of course, those that have listened to our earlier episode about Wahoo, he's a contemporary of Bob's, same era, 60s and 70s, right before things went national. Bob is much like Wahoo, in, in my opinion, and I admit, you know, personal bias that because they were both wrestled a lot here in the South, that they don't get the respect they they've earned. Mm-hmm. They really don't. Right. And I think Vince has tried being the big dog on the block and kind of what most casual fans see as pro unquote pro wrestling. He's tried to give people like Bob and Wahoo specifically, but others. It's just hard to understand unless you were here at the time to understand how over they were. Right. right. It, it's one of those things that I can't empathize, but I can sympathize. It's like I understand it, at least on the basic level, but I don't understand from the living it angle, if that makes any sense. Now, you were talking about the National Expanse. This was around the time that Georgia Championship Wrestling started getting national television. Bob was already there. And this was really his first national exposure. Bob began teaming with Brad because Brad would have been uh, probably around 20, 21 at this point. I think he even won Georgia tag titles. And so here you have the white meat baby face father with his white meat baby face son. And here comes this young guy by the name of Roddy Piper. And we all know what type of heel he was. Well, that feud kind of writes itself, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, he kind of likes to stir the pot. That's that's his that's his mo. So yeah, and it's it's this is a time when we would like I said we're going to talk about the whole family. Bob trains all of his sons, and they all enter the wrestling business in their late teens, early twenties, and that was the the, the general uh, way of bringing one of the boys into the business. The oldest being Scott, and then Brad, then Steve, and then Brian. 
they would come into the business. Their dad was already known. He would tag with them, get them over, and then, you know, move on and kind of step out. At this point in era, Bob's obviously in the twilight of his career. Let's be honest, it's not that dissimilar from what Dusty did for Dustin and then Cody later on. Exactly. Yeah, Dusty and Dustin had several tag matches, both in WWE and WCW. Mm-hmm. And they're not the only ones. I, I don't know if Stu ever wrestled with any of his boys, but I'm sure he did at some point in Calgary. The, the, the big parade of champions in Dallas where Kerry beat Flair for the world title. One of the biggest matches on that card wasn't the world title match. It was Fritz coming out of retirement to tag with Kevin and, and Mike against the Freebirds in that street fight. It was a big deal. Oh, my gosh, Fritz on Eric's coming out of retirement. He's going to tag with his boys. But it, it, it's I think the family dynamic that just kind of sells itself, doesn't it? Yeah, and another uh, more regional example would have been when Jerry Lawler was teaming with Brian Christopher, although I think Jerry kind of tried to cover the tracks and not really make it public that Brian was a son just because you know it would make people wonder how old King was, but that that's just my understanding right. of the situation. Right. And, and Brian was in, in Brian's defense, no matter how good Brian was, it was going to be almost impossible to live up to his father. Jerry, once again, I don't think I can emphasize how over Jerry Lawler was in Memphis. You just don't understand unless you lived there. But regarding Bob, he had this run with Brad as tag champions. He had the feud with Piper. And this is really probably the most unfortunate time of his career because he was working out. He was in the gym. And I believe what happened was barbells like fell on his face or something to that effect. He was using dumbbells instead of a full barbell. And he lost his grip, and it fell on his face. And this was like, I want to say, like an 85-pound weight, uh, the barbell. So light. And it literally crushed his face and ripped his nose off of his face. He had to have extensive plastic surgery, almost 40, 40 grand you know, worth of surgery in the 80s. Right. So you, you, can get the, you can get the inflation calculator out, ladies and gentlemen, and figure out how much that was, was now. So. <laughs> right. And as a result, he started wrestling under a mask as the bullet. I don't know if this is where the bullet Bob came from or if he was known as that before then. No, um, this is this is when he adopted the bullet gimmick. Because this didn't happen in the ring and it wasn't part of an angle, he needed to cover up his face and the scars as he recovered from this plastic surgery. And so he just they did the gimmick where it was everybody knew it was Bob Armstrong, but he was just calling himself the bullet. And he had a big B right on his forehead of his mask. And eventually, obviously, he would heal up enough to where he would take the mask off. But he continued to use the bullet gimmick even after he took the mask off. I think even going into the time in Smoky Mountain, because after he retired, I think he retired around 1988, around in the 90s, he acted as the authority figure, the commissioner for Smoky Mountain wrestling. Mm -hmm. And I think he even wrestled for a time there under the mask. That might have been Memphis, but... No, no, that was that was Smoky Mountain when when Smoky first started. Cornette talks about this on a lot of his podcasts where he talks about the time where he ran Smoky Mountain. This was before Vince had revealed that he owned WWF. This is before Bischoff and the idea of the authority figure. But you still had authority figures in wrestling. You had mm-hmm. Jack Tunney in the WWF. You'd right. have Jim Crockett Jr. come out. You'd have uh, uh, Stanley Blackburn in the AWA. You had authority figures in wrestling. And so Cornette wanted one, uh, and Bob just made sense. Going back once again to what I keep bringing up, here's a guy, known star in the area, 
Because another area outside of Georgia he had a very significant run in was the old Continental, which was run by the Wellers, the the Fulches, the Fullers and the Welches. Blah, I'll get it right eventually. That would be the family of Ron and Robert Fuller, their their dad and granddad and uncle and stuff. And it was this weird territory. It was kind of this swath of the South that ran the southernmost point would be the Panhandle of Florida up through Alabama and into in, into into southeastern Tennessee. And he worked a lot there too. So he was known to the he was known to the crowd in Smoky Mountains. And like I said, he could talk. So he, it just makes sense. Bring this guy in. He's a known baby face. He's he represents law and order because he's a former firefighter and former Marine. He he could talk. These people know who he is. It's kind of a no brainer, isn't it? Right, right. It makes sense because Smoky Mountain is kind of looked at as being the last of the territories. Yeah, for what it's worth, that old Continental Territory would be referred to by the worker, by a lot of workers, old timers, as the Pensacola Territory, because we've brought up before a territory to the wrestlers was not known by Georgia Championship Wrestling or Mid Atlantic Championship Wrestling or whatever, a Calgary Stampede. It was known by the city that the office was in or the major city. So it was Charlotte, it was New York, it was Atlanta, it was Tampa. It was Dallas. You see what I'm saying? And right. for that territory, Pensacola. And then just over the state line in Alabama is another major city called Dothan. That, that, that was a big city for them. And he was, believe me, Bob was huge in like Dothan, Pensacola. That's the same area, if you think about it, that, that's, that's, that, that borders on the same area that brought, it gave us like William Moody, Paul Bear, mm-hmm. and Michael Hayes. They're all that abutted on what was called the Gulf Coast Territories, which would be called Mobile. Which Mobile was the major city in that territory. There's a lot of famous guys that became big stars in wrestling. They grew up watching Bob and 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 in these territories. It's also the same territories that gave us Ricky and Robert Gibson. Rob, Ricky Morton that came from Memphis because that's where his dad was a referee up there. Gave us Bobby Eaton. So that's a bunch of Hall of Famers I just listed right there, right? Absolutely. <laughs> we probably yeah. all grew, grew up watching Bob Armstrong and, and being inspired by him. Right, right. It makes sense. And he still wrestled time and again there just on independence and such i remember he had right. a couple matches in in tna because i remember mike Tanay making the analogy because bob was standing there you know waiting for the tag and they, they focused in on his boots and mike Tanay said these boots are older than most of the wrestlers we have on the roster <laughs> <laughs> go back to smoky mountain and and i i we kind of got we kind of got off that he was the commissioner there they used that as a way to bring in the other boys too because well, Brad at this time was already an established star, mid-carter for the Crockett's and then Turner. But why don't you talk about how they brought in Scott to Smoky Mountain and how Bob was played into that? Well, again, it was a, a mass gimmick. Because Scott, mm-hmm. like like his father, started wrestling in the Georgia Territory, preliminary matches here and there. I think he also teamed with Brad for a while. But the biggest he days he had in Smoky Mountain was he was under a mask under the name Dixie Dynamite. Spelled like that, right. like D Y dash N O dash M I T. Right, and the, the the ring attire would never work today. He would be canceled, but he came to the ring wearing a Confederate flag as a as a cape and a mask that was a Confederate flag, and it wore blue tights that had like sticks of dynamite on, like not real sticks, like like images of. Right. And he was over because in 1991 in Knoxville, Tennessee. That kind of stuff worked. It doesn't work now, but it worked back then. We're only, what, 
five, ten years removed from the General Lee with the Confederate flag on top, driving all over primetime television. Right, it is what right, it is. Right. Yeah, 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 you're right. Really, now, were we focusing on Scott here? We're going to... Yeah, let's talk about Scott a little bit because we'll come back to Brad and Steve and where they are at this time period, too, once we talk okay. about Scott a little bit. Because this is kind of Scott's first – it's when Scott first jumped on my radar as a tape trader and a wrestling I knew he existed as a fan, but I knew more about Brad and Steve and Bob because of watching them. I hadn't seen Scott yet. So let's talk about Scott, and then we'll go back to Brad and, Brad and Steve and where they are at the time, and then, of course, we'll end up with Brian. So anyway, okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Scott spent the rest of the 1990s. He did a lot of work for WCW. He was a lower card wrestler. I do remember hearing the name I, here and there. I think it was on like Saturday night and such. And mm-hmm. he did see some success with Brad and Steve towards the end of WCW. He had transitioned into being a referee. So he actually spent the better part of the last 20 years as a referee, not as an in-ring wrestler. I think there was an angle that they ran in Smoky Mountain where where he unmasked, and I can't remember. He lost like a loser leaves like a mask versus hair match or something, and he lost his mask and revealed himself as an Armstrong. And then they 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 spun an angle off that. I'm and going off of memory here, ladies and gentlemen. I haven't watched this. I want to say they did a they did an angle <laughs> where Bob lost his commissionership. But the board of trustees, I say that with air quotes, of Smoky Mountain wanted another Armstrong. So Scott, for a while, became the commissioner, if I remember right. And that led to Scott and Bob tagging in matches, I think, against the Heavenly Bodies, I think. It makes sense. They were the top heel tag team. And so. And Brad, around this time again in Smoky Mountain, this is really where he kind of came to the forefront. He, too, was in Southeastern Championship Wrestling. He had mm-hmm. tag team championships with Magnum T.A., he was the Lightning Express with Tim Horner, mm-hmm. and that was really more kind of the, the NWA uh, territories and Georgia right. territory at that point, right? Yeah. I first remember Brad. I vaguely remember the Georgia stuff with his dad in the early 80s. In the mid-80s, he was brought in as a white meat baby face mid-card, mid-card guy for the Crockett's. And he had some—you always knew as a fan that when Brad was in there— you might not give the greatest promo, but you were going to have a great match because he just he could go. To was, this day, I still remember that dropkick. Mm-hmm. And he's that damn near legally blind. I can't believe he throws it and never hurts anybody because we know we know how blind Stan Hansen is and what that does for his clothesline. <laughs> <laughs> Brad wore like legitimately the Coke bottle glasses. Brad's really, really was had really bad vision, but Brad was one of the smoothest guys in the ring you'll ever see. He was, and this is the greatest compliment, and I think you'll understand what I, when I say it, he was every bit as good technically, in my opinion, for that era as like a Ricky Steamboat in yeah. ring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He had great psychology, and the guy was, he was cut, and he was a good-looking guy. He had long hair. He had, a, he, had a, he had a good beard, so the ladies would like him. He just couldn't cut a promo, and it made no sense because his dad was this great promo. It, it was just crazy because as we talk about all four of the boys, we talked about how, how Bob had all four of the things you got to have to be a successful pro wrestler. For whatever reason, all the boys only got one of the four each. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the dad had all four and like his genes split when he had kids. And it's like Brad got the in-ring psychology and the in-ring ability of Bob. That's what, what Brad got. Scott was probably – Scott was prob- probably got the, the understanding of the business because he became a referee. Yeah, 
Yeah, that, and I think he also probably probably is the best pure athlete. He's the smallest, mm-hmm. so he was just more limber and and could move. And he, he was kind of a, when he was Dixie Dynamite, he was kind of a junior heavyweight and wrestled that style with a lot of stuff off the top rope. So he got more of the more of the athleticism, the natural raw athleticism Bob had. <laughs> but it was. Yeah, like you said, I think eventually he moved over to being a referee. And then Brad, later on, when Crockett bought George and started gobbling up territories, is when he started tagging with Tim Horner as a Lightning Express. And there was just a glut of tag teams in WCW slash Turner at the time. And so they kind of got lost in the mix. And it doesn't help that neither Tim nor, nor Brad could cut a promo. Right. And they're both white meat baby faces. And you're talking about an era when... The rock and roll have already had their run. We're on the second incarnation of the of the of the midnights with with Bobby and Stan. Doom's just starting. The Road Warriors are the Road Warriors, right? The Steiners are coming in. You can see how they're starting to get lost now because of all these other teams. Right, right. And and to people who remember long term for WCW and the the Crockett's before then. Mm-hmm. They had two sets of tag team titles. They had the World Tag Team Champions and the United States Tag Team Champions. Right at those right, times right. as well. So you had actually two sets, and they even had a six man title for a while. So there were for a, a little lot while. of tag teams to go around. And hey, if you're like me and the tag team guy, it, it was fine. But even then, three sets of tag titles is a bit much. Right, right. And and so Brad kind of languished there for a while. He went off to Japan left them and went back to the territories. But I think everybody who grew up in that era who saw all four of the Armstrongs will always say Brad was, as far as body and in-ring work, was the best of the four. Not that all four of them were good. you know. Right. He, like I said, I, I cannot – the biggest compliment I can give anybody is the one I gave him. When, when Brad was on, and I can't think of when he was ever off, he was as smooth in the ring as Ricky Steamboat. Everything he did looked good. It made sense. And everybody said he never hurt anybody, you know, mm-hmm. like I said, he had one of the most beautiful drop kicks in the, in the, in the, in the history of the business, the, the little things that fans don't catch, but we as workers catch how high he would get on like a leapfrog, how high he could go up for a hip toss, how high he'd take a backdrop, how he could, how he would sell the facial expressions, the way he would tense his body up to sell pain. Those are the little things that either you have it or you don't, right. you know, right. He might be one of those guys. I don't know if he ever actually did it. But in a tag team match, he might be able to leapfrog over both opponents. Yes, yes, yes. And and it's just it's just really sad that he didn't have a promo because I feel like Brad's one of those guys that I don't know if he should have been a world champion, but he should have had like a run with the U.S. title or something. Or the, he had the WCW light heavyweight championship, which later basically got rechristened into the cruiserweight title a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was in the light heavyweight or the junior heavyweight run for All Japan. Uh, I don't think he ever won the title, but he was he he would he would contend for it. He was the top contender, yeah. And there uh, there was a run there before he left to go to Japan during the the, the 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 infamous Jim Hurd era, where they couldn't figure out what to do with Brad, and so he just kept getting cha- gimmicks changed. And we all know that can be a death knell for a talent. And he was put under hood twice. We we spoke on our last episode we talked halloween havoc 1991 he had wrestled as both a babyface arachna man which was a pure ripoff of spider-man that got turner sued by marvel then he was a pure heel as bad street which they had to change the name because they got threatened by a lawsuit by disney because he was being called fantasia at first was part of the the, the free birds group right 
I'll never understand a masked Freebird. I'll just, I'll never understand that. <laughs> but there was also a time when he was Brad Armstrong without the mask, good looking guy. They were calling him the Candyman. Tony Schiavone talks at length about that. Several of his podcasts about the Jim Hurd era where Jim Hurd had this idea that they're trying to, we talked about this in the Halloween Havoc episode too, where they were trying to appeal to the kids. You have to understand you've got all these corporate people now that Turner's bought Crockett and they're trying to do all this research and they're going, okay, what is Vince doing that we're not doing? They're like, oh, well, Vince is really reaching out to the, the younger market, to the kids. So Hurd, I'm not saying Hurd was wrong in this. I'm just saying that it was wasn't ill-conceived, but it was ill. It, 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 the, the execution was bad. Right. You can understand where he's coming from. He just had the bad idea as far as how to go about it. Right. And the idea was to have a, a wrestler come out and pass candy out. To the, and he was going to call him the Candyman. Well, guess what Brad Armstrong became? The Candyman. Brad Armstrong. I remember, do you remember at this time they had a, a special week-long family feud where it was the men of WCW against like the women of glow. Do you remember that? Vaguely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the, one of the men was Brad Armstrong sting. I remember right was the captain because it would make sense. He was top baby face in the promotion at the time. Yeah. But the little name placard that they would have the contestants wear, his didn't say Brad, it said Candyman. (laughs) (laughs) So they were really pushing that gimmick hard. And it was just like, we talked about this off mic, me as understanding the business, obviously probably more than Jim Hurd does. You look at Brad Armstrong, and he's not the talent that you want passing out candy to the kids, trying to get over with the kids. He's the one that you send out in in, in an American Males or Tom Zink kind of look and get him to appeal to the ladies. Right. You know, that's right. just my opinion. Yeah, you don't put him under a mask. You put him. I, I think I said off off mic. You put him in a vest or or and then and then the short tights, maybe with chaps that mm-hmm. he can take off and for the ladies right, and such. Right. 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 And, and and I think one of the saddest things and one of the most shocking things to people in the business is, and I can speak to this personally, Brad is one of the funniest, well, sadly, Brad passed, passed away now about 10 years ago, but Brad was one of the funniest guys behind the camera in the business. He was a, a laugh a minute, tons of charisma and funny and had you rolling, but then it never translated in front of the camera. And he, he sadly is not the only guy like that in the business. I'm not saying this to disparage the dead, but if he wasn't as good in the ring as he was, he wasn't as good looking as he was, and he wasn't as built as well as he was, I don't think he'd have kept getting the chances that he got. It's that simple. Yeah, he had that action hero or maybe even model good looks. And I think you'd even said off camera, people would say, well, they couldn't cut a promo. Well, the ladies wouldn't care. Right. The first act, at least the women I know, who's listening to what he's saying. <laughs> That's the first thing they say. <laughs> right. I'm not listening to what he's saying. I'm looking at him. <laughs> so, and, and once again, we say you need at least three of the four things. Well, Brad had three of the four. He just didn't have the promo. That's the only one he didn't have. So it, 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 it it's sad. I, I, I've always felt that Brad, and he did win titles everywhere he went. I always felt Brad would have been a really good six eight month run as the u.s champ or the intercontinental champ you, you, the secondary title i agree i think you understand what i'm saying right right he, he'd be one of those guys it's easy for me to say because obviously i've never booked and never promoted or anything like that he'd be one of those guys i think he might fit the thing of like if you're gonna push him as a hard-working baby face he's one of those guys that would come out of every show and just say okay open challenge right 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 and, and even a tv champion he would have been a great mm-hmm. tv champion. oh yeah yeah Especially in that late 80s, early 90s era, but he was tied down with Tim Horner and, and that tag team, the Lightning Express. But it, it, it is what it is. 
I know that he got frustrated with it enough that he went to Japan and he went to Smoky Mountain and worked with his dad there. And he went to USWA and worked for Jerry Jarrett. But he did eventually come back to WCW. And this was the time when you were watching WCW pretty hard. Yeah, and yeah. sadly, this is probably the most national exposure he got. What was what, 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 Tell me a little bit about, more about that gimmick. I can't quite remember it all. Yeah, well, this, this would have been about the time of the Monday Night Wars. And he, I want to say it was Saturday night, because obviously once Nitro hit, Saturday night took a backseat, especially after Thunder. But I think he was doing a heel thing, and he was B.A. And when, instead of just Brad Armstrong, he was B.A., like B.A. Baracus. He was the No Limit Soldier. Then... Yeah, and I think that the double entendre on that one was like badass. And right. I'm, I'm sorry. That don't work for Brad. Not with his in-ring style. Not... Come on, the guy, had a, the guy had a smile that light up a room. Mm-hmm. Right, and then... The one that he had at, at the end of his WCW run, which would have been during the Vince Russo run, circa 1999, as they called him Buzzkill. And I can't help but think that it was kind of sort of parodying his brother Brian. And there was the, the double entranda that he was saying he was high on life, but they they basically made him look like a bit like a stoner. Because right. everything Vince Russo did had to have a double entranda to it. And I don't mm-hmm. want to get off on, the, on a rant on that right. rant. <laughs> but I also think some of it had to do best by the name and the way he portrayed the character. I always saw it as if you remember the, the, the secondary character in the old Beavis and Butthead MTV animated show was their gym teacher called Buzzcut, who was this ex-Marine who was like super hyper macho and super hyper. You, you get the kind of mm-hmm. guy. And right, right. they kind of bu- buzzkill in that gimmick. Brad kind of had that that persona like like oh no, i'm gonna we're gonna work out hard man go do my pecs that kind of guy that dude <laughs> the, the the mean dump the mean jock that everybody knew that was kind of a bully from high school there was a little bit of that to best kill too wasn't there yeah yeah i i think so he, i think he was a little more laid back to that but again you look at the guy you look at his body it's clear he knew his way around the gym so yeah, he did. He didn't miss too many. He didn't miss too many uh, days at leg days or pec days. He he right. hit his tries and buys. It's <laughs> right now after WCW, he he had a, a knee injury, if I recall correctly, and that and really this is about the time WCW was going south. And he's he spent his final years, in, at least in the business, were in WWE. He worked as a producer. I think he did color commentary for ECW, and he was still wrestling independence at that at that time. But sure, uh, but he, by that point, I think he was wearing like a huge knee brace because of the knee injury, if I remember right. Wasn't he? Right, right. Yeah, I think I think it pretty much ended his his full time career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sadly, like you said, he passed away in November first, two thousand twelve, was when he passed. Uh, and there was no official cause of death at the time, but it, I believe that it was. Uh, a heart attack. At least that's what it was to have been believed. Right. He he had one of those conditions that unfortunately shortened his life. And I mean, and like, I think I I think the speculation is, and it, and I'm not saying I I believe it or I don't believe it. I'm just throwing it out there for what it's worth. A lot of those guys that died, young Davy Boy Smith, uh, Hawk of the Road Warriors, guys that came up in the steroid era, and you looked at their bodies, it was obvious that they had taken steroids at some point. I think it was obvious. Looking at Brad, he probably took steroids at some point. I don't know if he was a hardcore steroid user like a Davy Boy or a Hawk, but I'm sure he used them at some point. Those will damage your heart. Sometimes you not even know about it because your heart is a muscle, and that's what steroids do is they stimulate muscle growth. So if you've already got a pre-existing condition you don't know about and you work out really hard and then you have this – you're taking this synthetic hormone that increases your amount of muscle mass, you can kind of see how that's a recipe for bad. I don't know if that's what it is. 
but I, I there's always a speculation that that wouldn't surprise me. Right, right. And then you, you add all that on, and then you, your heart's artificially working much harder than it than it needs yep. to. So it just it runs out of gas. But I right. think I think Brad can be said to this. And again, I don't want to sound like I'm speaking all the dead, like like you said. He seems to be the biggest example of what they called the Armstrong curse because he seems to have all the tools except for the talking ability, but yet he didn't seem to be that true draw that you think a guy that looked and moved like that could be. And like I said, when you compare all this to now Scott's had this problem, now Brad's had this problem, when you compare it to their father who was such a big star and had all the tools, I think that's – it's it reminds me of David Flair. Yeah. Not that there, David Flair is anywhere close to being as good as Brad was. He wasn't. David would tell you that, okay? But I say that as a personal experience I have with David, where David uh, was one of those guys WCW was sending to Cornelia to work there with Wildside. They We had a working deal with them where they would, the power plant guys and some of the lower-end TV guys would come and get – it was a chance to get bring experience in front of a crowd that did television. It was the very, very early days of what would be the developmental territory. And David was one of the guys they sent down one time. And myself and J.C. Daz and a couple other guys that were not second-generation guys, we were sitting in the locker room laughing and talking about stuff. And David, just out of the blue, said, I really respect you guys. And we're like, huh? And he's like, you guys are over, and you earned it. Because how hard it is to be the son of a legend? That really sunk in with me. And I wonder, as, as, as much as I met the arm, uh, interactions I had with the Armstrongs, and I had a lot, you, you never, I never heard Brad or Steve or any of them talk about that. But it had to be tough being the son of Bob Armstrong trying to make a way in professional wrestling in the South, wouldn't you think? Right, absolutely. We've said before about some celebrities that if you didn't know who they were, like the last thing you'd think is that they're a big celebrity. But I get the feeling with the Armstrongs, if you didn't know who they were, You'd still think they were tough hosses. Yeah. As you like to say all the time, you usually say this about, about Randy Orton and his father, Bob, but you've heard you say about the Armstrong too. Bob didn't raise those sissies. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, he's a former Marine. I'm pretty sure discipline was very well regimented in the, in the Armstrong <laughs> or James home growing up. Just saying. Right. Now, regarding Steve, this, this would be the, the third son in line. Like the rest mm-hmm. of the Armstrong family, he started out in Southwest Championship Wrestling. His first major program was teaming with Johnny Rich. You mentioned Ron Fuller. So he was against Ron Fuller's stud stable, which included a young Arn Anderson. I think he would have still been known by his real name as Marty Lundy at this time. Uh, was, uh, he, was he Marty Lundy or was he under the hood doing the, the, the Mr. Doing, Olympia? Doing, yeah, Super Olympia. Mr. Okay. Olympia was, was, Ted, o- was uh, Ted Oates. Or sorry, right. uh, Jerry Stubbs. Right. right. Yeah. Jerry Stubbs. And, Ted, yeah. Ted Oates was the, guy, was, the mass, was the mass nightmare who trained him. Sorry. <laughs> well, we could do a whole episode on. Arn Anderson. So sure, so we'll, sure. we'll save it for that talk. But <laughs> And really, I think the most success Steve Armstrong had was with Tracy Smothers, another guy we, we lost this year as, as the Southern Boys. They were in Eddie Graham's Florida Championship Wrestling. They also won the tag titles in Continental Championship Wrestling. That would have been Memphis or... No, Continental's that way I was talking about with Pensacola. Oh, oh, yeah, with the Pensacola. Okay, yeah. That's now, now you're beginning to understand why we in the business name it by the city instead of <laughs> that's <just> much easier. <laughs> right, right. It's Pensacola territory. Which to go back to the the Southern Boys, we discussed them briefly on our last episode because they were in they were they had a they had a match on Halloween Havoc 1991. They were in Florida, and I believe the Florida Tag Team Champions are feuding with the Mod Squad at the time, who was. 
Mac and Jeff Jeffers, who were two job guys from the old 605, who went away to Louisiana and got a gimmick and came back <laughs> mm-hmm. and did like the evil state trooper, like motorcycle chips, chips type okay. guys. Yeah. Yeah. And we discussed last the, on that, on that same Halloween Havoc episode, how in this attempt to unsouthernize WCW, they switched their gimmicks from the, the wild eyed Southern boys to the young pistols. Right. And made them cowboys from Wyoming as opposed to good old boys from Florida and Tennessee or wherever they claimed to be from. Right, right. And that's really where they had their highest exposure, at least on a national level, was in WCW. And right. And with the Freebirds over the U.S. tag titles. We talked about the, them having two sets of tag titles at the time. And, they had a match. Yeah. And I can't remember if it was a clash or if it was a pay-per-view. They had a, well, it was an opening or second match against the second incarnation of, the, of, of Midnight Express, which, of course, would have been Stan Lane and Bobby Eaton. You talk about a great match, and I've heard Cornette and his podcast talk about it where they were not given a whole lot of time because of the other guys higher on the card having longer matches, and so they just decided we're going to go nonstop. We're not. We're going to put everything we can get in in like the eight or ten minutes they gave them, and boy, did they ever. Steve, I think, was maybe the tallest, if not Brian is. Steve, I don't think, had the body of Brad. He was, a, he was a better talker, I think, than Brad was. I don't think he had the athletic ability of Scott, but he was a big strapping guy. Once again, they're all good looking. All mm-hmm. of them were. Their dad was a good looking. So, yeah, I thought they were once again just much like Brad and Horner a few years prior to this. They kind of got lost because there were just so many tag teams. This is the days of Doom and the Steiners and the Road Warriors. And I'm sorry – I don't care how awesome you were, and Steve and Tracy were great. You're going to have a hard time getting over when those are the three top tag teams in the, in the, in the federation or in the promotion. Especially since the, the lion's share of the exposure is going to be on those teams. Yes, yes. I mean, the, 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 the feud at the time was, was the big feud was the Steiners against Doom, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, no, no, Road Warriors would have been working for Vince at this time, I think, because this would have been early they, 90s. Not yeah. long, not, yeah, not long after this is when they left. Like we said, well, you, you have the Steiners and you have Doom, you have the Skyscrapers, you have the Road Warriors. We were getting ready to leave. But then on top of that, they're also, you have the Horsemen, some incarnation, Barry and Flair, Arn and Barry, Arn and Flair. And they also are having Sting and Luger tag a lot at this time period, too. So it's mm-hmm. right before Arn or Lex turns heel. So you've got – you're just going to get lost in that. You're just going to get lost in that no matter how hard you try because it just is what it is. Right, right. So I think they had a, a tag title run. I think they, they had a heel turn in there as, as well. But And I think it was a U.S. title, wasn't it? Right, right. It was U.S. title, U.S. tag title. They were never they were another world champion. Correct. But, I correct. mean, they had fantastic matches with the Freebirds, with the Midnights. I think they might have had a, have one right before the Fantastics left with the Fantastics. I, I'm not sure. The, the Sheepers, before they left and became the Bushwhackers, I'm pretty sure they had good matches with them. You know, mm-hmm. so. Right, right. But they left WCW, and that's really where they split for singles careers, and Tracy Smothers went on to have, have his career. And now, mm-hmm. I remember his run in WWE or WWF at the time because I was smart enough to remember, hey, wait a minute, this is one of the Young Pistols. And he went by the name Lance Cassidy, which is really, that's about as corporate of a name as you can think of. And really, the the main thing I remember from his run, again, they were kind of pushing him as a, a white meat cowboy babyface. Nothing really clicked, but I remember his theme music. And his theme music was really cool, kind of a boogie-woogie rhythm and blues, harmonica, you know, cool blues guitar riffs. And they tried to say that he recorded his own theme, which I don't know if 
Steve was ever musically inclined. As I, I Not that feeling, I know of. Yeah, I get the feeling that was still Jim Johnson, but the the, the magic that is that was Jim Johnson. You know? Right, right. But that that's really the only thing that I remember was how cool that theme music. And I don't think it was ever released, but you can probably find faded versions of it as people tried to put it on YouTube and such. But after WWE, uh, Steve went to work for Smoky Mountain Wrestling, just like all of his other brothers did, and. This was really before he returned to WCW in 95, but he and Brad teamed both his uh, faces and heels, I think, in WCW. And again, we talked about how great Brad was in the ring. Uh, they didn't really catch on uh, as a team or as singles. And mm-hmm. like Brad, Steve left WCW circa 2000. I don't know if you remember anything about his uh, Smoky Mountain run. Not just, just he was part of that, that Armstrong versus cornet feud that was never really ended <laughs> the whole run of that promotion and i'm sure by that point i think cornet had cut brokered the deal with vince where there were some talent exchanges going on tracy when they split up had gone in and, and essentially become the white meat local hero baby face for the promotion and then that ended and and steve came in and was working with brad and by that point i think buddy landell was was the top guy in smoky mountain and was on the way to having that awesome babyface turn where he basically where he was being managed by Cornette and he basically told Cornette, "I'm going to do this on my own." When he faced Shawn Michaels in an Intercontinental Title match, and that was that was one thing I will give Cornette and the Armstrongs fit in that perfectly. It's probably why they all wound up in Smoky Mountain at some point. Cornette growing up in Louisville on Memphis, being such a wrestling junkie, he understood, and this goes back to what I said earlier about Bob. He understood that the fan base and for these small promotions, they wanted heroes that looked and sounded like their neighbors. And the Armstrongs were that. Uh, Buddy Landell was like that. Granted, he had the bleach blonde hair, but Buddy, he was going to hide that southern accent of his. He's from North Carolina. So Tracy, all these people were guys that were from around the area. So they were automatically just that crowd, which is I find funny that New Jack got so much heat down there. Of course, it was racially motivated, but he was from Atlanta. The, they build him from 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 L.A. or Oakland, and he played up the racial th- side. And I think they might even, I think Brad Steve might even had a, a brief view with the gangsters at that point. I think every babyface tag team did at some point again at that run in Smoky Mountain against the gangsters. Right, right. Because I think the gangsters they had their run in Smoky Mountain before ECW, like like before they did, those they glory did. days of ECW. They yeah, they did, they did. And it, it, once again, it's racially charged. But what works better than having these two? Tough, and we're talking the, we're talking the 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 period of OJ trial and and Reginald Denny. So there's a lot of racial tension in the country, and this is a predominantly white crowd in the hills of Tennessee and Kentucky, and you're having these 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 good looking white guys that look like their neighbors getting left in a pool of their own blood by these two black guys, and one of them talking a whole lot of smack. That's heat, ladies. That's heat. Something that that we're we don't do nowadays, and it's like yeah, but. Uh, <laughs> The big promotions are having a hard time selling as many many tickets to live shows as Smoky Mountain was, and these high school gyms were back then. So you tell me who's right and who's wrong. Right, right. I can understand that. So that brings us to Brian, a.k.a. B.G. James, a.k.a. probably most famously known as Road Dog. He right. had the highest profile career out of the Armstrong family children. I don't think that uh, really has any question there's, to it. You know? No, there's no, none, none, none. Yeah, they, they've been say they've said that he's the one that broke the Armstrong family curse because he had mm-hmm. these very successful national runs. Now he too started off Southeast Championship Wrestling, but like his father, he went and became a Marine, served our country. He had 
a couple tours. Fought the first, fought the first Gulf War, didn't he? Right, right, the, yeah. Yeah, he's, he spent some time back when it was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Uh, that mm-hmm. was his time serving our country as a Marine. His full-time career began in 1993 in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Again, you may notice the pattern forming here. Again, mm-hmm. wrestling under a mask and was unmasked as Brian Armstrong, another Armstrong brother. And during this time, he also wrestled for WCW. Again, this would have been about the time WCW Saturday Night was the top show of the promotion. Mm-hmm. Not, obviously not counting Clash of Champions, but that this is really where the big angles and the big stories would have taken place. Or he might have been right. in the syndicated weekend shows. Because I, right. I seem to recall hearing the name Brian Armstrong way back right. when in WCW. This is when I met Brian and he would be the first Armstrong I would meet. I was I went to one of the one of those Saturday night tapings as a fan. It was before I'd even trained. And the guy I went with was a coworker of mine who was a big wrestling fan who was also a Marine. And Brian had a Marine tattoo on his arm. Yeah, still has it today. Yeah, and after the matches, we we went around to the parking lot because some of the smarter fans that I, just I immediately clung on to them or, or started talking to them and, uh, in the line waiting to get into the building. I didn't know them, but it was we we all had this not we all were reading dirt sheets, we all were tape traders, we were getting the Japanese wrestling magazines, we were the hardcores. Mm-hmm. So even though the friend of mine wasn't, I was, and so I, I immediately and they told us where the guys would be after the matches. So we went around there and he it was Brian and I want to say Randy Anderson. Yeah, it was Randy. Randy had that three hundred ZX he always had beer in the back of. And <laughs> we we started talking to Brian and Owen not Owen Hart. Owen was my coworker with me. Owen immediately struck up a conversation with Brian based on the tattoo. And they started talking about their their time in the court. And that broke down. And, and then they started talking to me. And I started talking to Brian about how I want to get into the business. And he was very nice. He did, wasn't discouraging like some of the other guys had been in my youth. And he's like, well, you're a big size. You're a good sized guy. And he's like, yeah, athletic. And I told him, athletic. He goes, yeah, you, you might have capabilities to do that because unfortunately my dad doesn't run a school my dad only trains us but he gave me the, the name of a couple of guys that he knew would ran schools in the area i think like ivan koloff and i think at the time gene 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 hadn't passed had no gene had passed away but i think Oli was still training some guys so he gave me the name of some guys that, that were in the carolinas and georgia i might want to look into and then years later through other searches i did get trained and when I started working the Indies, I wound up working a show where Brian and Scott were on. And Brian remembered me. And this was like four or five years later. And we had a nice talk, and that's where my friendly started. And then subsequently, through working shows, they would be booked on. I would have met one and struck up a, a, a conversation with them and got to know them. And then another Armstrong would show up I hadn't met yet, and they'd introduce me. And that eventually, that I think the last one I actually met was Steve, believe it or not. I think Bob was the second to last. And to to that discipline thing we were talking about in the, in the James home, it was very obvious when Brad introduced me to his father, there was still a lot of respect and fear there by the boys. <laughs> you know, uh, he goes, this is my father, Bob. I'm like, you don't have to tell me who your dad is. And he introduced me <laughs> and everything. This is my father, Bob Armstrong. I'm like, I know who Bob Armstrong is. <laughs> and, and I get the feeling, you, you can probably relate personally, but I get the feeling even well into his 70s, Bob was the type of guy that still had a young man's mm. handshake. He's the type of guy oh, that he did. Rip your Oh, hand. yeah. Yeah, and he was, he was just the nicest guy in the world. The first time I met Bob, he talked to me not about wrestling. 
about my life, about my kids. So many veterans would talk to you about, do you have a plan if this doesn't work out? Do you have an education? That he's, He said all those same things, but it didn't come across as arrogant as it did from these other guys. It was his sincerity like, you seem like a good young man. I want you to take care of your family. And I think the fact that he and his wife were together so long and she she preceded Bob a few months before Bob and, and, and death, it's obvious a guy that had a family like this, trained all his sons, had a wife, and stayed married that long in the wrestling business, family and those kind of things, they meant a lot to Bob Armstrong. And I think he passed it along to his boys. I have nothing but great things to say about all the Armstrong. All of them were very helpful to me in this time period. They all it, – it was amazing. I, I wouldn't see them for six months or a year, and they would remember me. I think that mm-hmm. says a lot. Yeah. They would remember my name. They would talk to – ask me how my family was doing, uh, talk to – give me small bits of advice, not about just things in the wrestling business, but just things in life. Life just, nuggets, I would call it, right? Yes. Just all of them were great guys. Some of the advice they gave me about the wrestling business and about like the psychology was amazing. Dan Wilson, the Reverend Dan, who of course we've had on as a guest before here and on several of our other podcasts, tells tells a great story about how Bob got very upset one on a show he was working with, and Bob let a, a cuss word slip. And I don't want to. It was it was something that that was like a damn. It wasn't even something that would get you an explicit rating on a podcast. But then found out that I can't. I don't know. I can't. I can't remember if it was Dan's child or another wrestler's child was in the audience. He spent the rest of the freaking show in the locker room profusely apologizing that he had let a, a profane word slip across <laughs> his lips in front of this child to this kid's dad. That's the kind of person Bob Armstrong yeah. is. Yeah. You know? And it's like, yeah, you're Bob Armstrong. You can say damn all you want. <laughs> yeah. You're Bob freaking Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But anyway, yeah, I'm sorry. I got off. I got off on all of them. But that Brian was the first I met, and I met him before I was. In, and then once I got in the business, and we actually wound up working a show together, he remembered who I was, and he subsequently wound up introducing me to all his family. That as I worked other shows with him. But anyway, I'm sorry. I was a yeah. little personal story there. I didn't mean to get off on tangent. Yeah. Now to put things in per- in perspective, this would have been about the time you you met Brian. Now, granted, he was working the undercard. Uh, yeah, it was probably... like 94, I want to say, is when I met him. And then we didn't work a show again together to like 97. I'd been in the business a couple of years at that point. Right, but but look at some of the names that Brian would have been working with and having matches with. Uh-huh. Steven Regal, who would have gone on to become William Regal. Steve Austin. Terror Rising, who would become Triple H. Those are three uh-huh. first ballot Hall of Famers right there. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> and he, and right. he's learning from them at a young age. And he's working them in his first year in the business on national television. I didn't get I didn't get that. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, where most of our listeners, I'm sure, remember him from would have been his time in DX. But he had a few years before that where he was teaming with Jeff Jarrett as the roadie because this was when Jeff Jarrett had that country singer gimmick, the right. Double J Jeff Jarrett and that song with My Baby Tonight, which, again, was a Jim Johnson song. Uh, but it wasn't the angle where... Jeff claimed he's saying it, but then the, then we find out that actually Brian had said it. Correct, correct. And they had that music video that was all And Brian, country. by the way, I, I've done karaoke with Brian. He really can sing. That's, yep. that's a shoot. He had a song in his TNA days that I think he did with Ron Killings and Conan, where it was kind of rapping, but he was singing along with it, too. All right. Well, it seems we lost train here, so we're going to get him on the phone here. Uh, stand by. 
All right, we're back here. Uh, unfortunately, the internets are not playing fair with us tonight, so we're going to finish up this show here on the phone. And Train, you were you were talking about how you knew he could sing a bit, so yeah, yeah, I karaoke with before. He's <laughs> pretty good singer, <laughs> right? Right. So yeah, I was going to apologize, lady, the change in sound quality, but I did have to switch to my phone. My my hardware was not wanting to cooperate, <laughs> nor was my cat who kept unplugging my headset. But I <laughs> yeah, I, I know how uh, that goes. And the other the other yeah, thing well, about that angle with with Jared is, I will say Jared did a good job of doing the lip sync. If you didn't truly know better. You probably would have bought it, but wrestling, yeah. ev- everything's a work in wrestling, so you, you, you can't figure Well, I don't think it. that was actually Brian the song. I think it was actually a, a professional singer, but I could be wrong. I, that was that point, like you said there, that everybody must have not been getting paid by the WWE because everybody else had a second career. Jarrett's happened to be a country music singer. <laughs> right, right, and they, they'd have the, the Duke the Dumpster Drossy, and Bob Holly was a race car driver. and Her and driver, and, 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 yeah. and Brian, Brian Armstrong was, well, he's Jesse James at the time. He was a, he was a roadie for a mm-hmm. country. Right, on, right. And, and then after the angle of them, exposing that Brian was the one that actually sang it, that he was the real Double J, Jesse James, and he feuded with, of all people, the Honky Tonk Man because Honky wanted to manage him, and Jesse James refused, and Honky wound up recruiting Billy Gunn and calling him Rockabilly Gunn. And I think you can see how, wow, this really uh, packed him in for miles around, not. Uh, It was was, was not a great timing. (laughs) Right, right. This is really about the time where I was watching WCW more than I was watching WWE. I still watched WWE at the time, but really this is about the time Vader was hitting full stride and we were getting, you know, I think we're building into the Nitro era. If this angle is, we understand why you're choosing one product. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Do I want to watch Rockabilly Gun or do I want to watch Big Van Vader? Hmm, Let me think about this. And that's no disrespect to to Billy Gunn or Jeff Jarrett or Brian. Or Honky, for that yeah. matter. Or, yeah, all of them are great guys. He called four of them in the Hall of Fame. But uh, uh, but regardless... Strangely enough, none of these gimmicks caught on at the time. Yeah, and shockingly, outside of Talk Man, it was almost a nostalgia act at the time, none of them would go in the Hall of Fame for, <laughs> for any of this stuff. <laughs> Other gimmicks that actually got him in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> right. But w- within a few years... Gun dropped the rockabilly gimmick, changed his name to Badass, and that's kind of really where they started becoming the New Age Outlaws. And they really spent probably about four years solid at the top or near the top of the WWF card as part of uh, DX. And they held the WWF tag, tag titles by my count at the time uh, four times. And then they yeah, kind I think of. If I, if I remember right, they tried to explain the partnership based on the angle we just talked about. It, it, that's why they did this whole. In our in our time, we gained respect for each other type thing. So, and you have to remember, the New Age Outlaws were kind of a mid-card tag team act. And it wasn't until they joined DX that they were elevated to more of a main event, upper middle card act. That had a lot with Shawn Michaels for his extended sabbatical because of his back end. We thought he retired. And it was, DX was a hot act. And Hunter was friends with Brian and Billy, and he worked out with them. So they elevated them, and they brought them in, and so they were kind of, people tend to forget that, but they were part of the second incarnation of DX. People tend to forget that there were two incarnations because they, they, they transitioned so quick, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think, didn't they win the world tag team titles from, I think, Nick Foley and Terry Funk, and then the, the next night on Raw was when they announced them as official members of DX? Right. I think this was around the time... 
Sean Waltman came back as as X Pac. I want right. to say, and that yeah. kind of that kind of uh, rounded out the group of what we know more. And then of course Sean would come back, and it was Sean and Hunt. Right. But yeah, and and I think we all have DX started, especially the incarnation was Rick Rude, China Trips, and Sean was Vince's answer to the NWO. Right. And it was pretty obvious at the time too. Yeah, and it got even the New Age Outlaws in there because it was just it was these cool heels. It was heels that had a cool factor to them that were anti-authoritarian, and they weren't heels in the traditional sense where they just – they weren't the horseman jumping dusty roads in the parking lot breaking it. That wasn't the kind of heat DX was. DX was crude and loud, and if they had to break a rule, so be They were a little bit – I don't want to say softer heel, but I think – Yeah, or this was the time where Sergeant Slaughter was the authority figure, and when Slaughter mm-hmm. would cut a promo in front of him, they'd wear – clear shields in front of their faces because the, the, the idea was, the slaughter was yeah because yeah. slaughter was supposedly spitting on him when he talked can you, you know, imagine the, doing that nowadays over there <laughs> <laughs> but the the other anyway. thing that's that's worth mentioning for me at least uh, about new age outlaws as i've heard vince russo himself say after the fact long after he left wwe that that was one of the times where vince mcmahon was right and he was wrong because he didn't see value in the new age outlaws but vince wanted them to be together as a tag team he thought let's put brian together with billy and put him as a tag team that was vince's idea and vince russo didn't like it but still went with it and it turned out vince's band was right and for what it's worth brian is probably the biggest of all the armstrongs including his father he's not thick as him but he's the tallest of them mm-hmm. yeah he's probably legit what six three yeah about six you would never know that because only goes about six five <laughs> it's uh, people I've said it before, you don't realize how big some of these guys are until you see them live. You know, right. mm-hmm. Brian Armstrong is, and it's funny that we, I think what he's most known for is, oh, you didn't know? And he became essentially the mouthpiece for, and the hype man for DX and for the New Age Outlaw. And we talked about how the three brothers couldn't cut a promo. Well, they all had better bodies than Brian and were probably a little bit better in the ring. But he's the one who can talk. <laughs> right, right. What's what's he the got, biggest what's the biggest exchange you remember Brian doing in the ring? It's probably where he'd shuffle his knees and and do a couple uh, lefts and rights and maybe a wind up punch. That seemed to be like his big comeback. Yeah, he just didn't have the not that he hurt anybody, but he didn't have the smooth drop kick. I mean, a nice drop, but he had a smooth drop kick like Brad had. And it's and once again, this can show you how off the promoters are. They're trying to push Brad, but Brad can't cut a promo. Well, I think Brian was was the victim of that. Nobody gave him a microphone for like five years. Mm-hmm. He was the, the the quiet guy behind Jeff here, which Jeff doesn't need. Jeff can talk. There was a good promo, right. right? Right. And so they didn't realize until they finally gave him a microphone. Oh crap! This guy can talk. Yeah, it's one of those <laughs> I mean, things. If you could go back in time and change things, it'd be like, okay, yeah, put put uh, Brian and Brad together as a tag team. Just yeah, let Brian talk. Let Brian talk. <laughs> let Brad let Brad do the work and maybe the workhorse. It's, it's hey, it, I thought Animal good promo, but I think Hawk was stronger. Uh, it, it wouldn't be the first time that that happened in a tag team. Ricky could cut a promo. Robert wasn't a great promo, but Ricky cut a great promo, and Robert was the workhorse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think when it talks about promos, you usually have the guy that's not as good of a promo started out, and then you have the guy that's the great promo take it home. Yeah, that's always how the Rock and Roll back in the eighties. <laughs> right, Rocket. right. Robert was and having syntax. There's maybe say three sentences, and Ricky cut this three-minute promo that was on par with Cornette and Flair, and you're like, okay, I'm paid to see that match. Yeah, <laughs> right. And that's what you do. You have Brad say, you let Brian take it home, and then you're like, yeah, I want to see that match. So, yeah, <laughs> right. It, it, right. It, 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 it's funny that, that we've talked earlier about 
how they seem to all like so so you know Brad got the dad the dad's in ring psychology, but he didn't get any, really get much of the other stuff. Scott got got the pure raw athlete, but didn't have the size of talking. Steve had the size, and but he couldn't talk. And now now you got Brian, who doesn't really have the the, the thickness; he's got the height, but doesn't have the great build, and is not the greatest in ring technician, but he can talk like a thing. <laughs> How did that happen? Yeah, yeah, it's no disrespect to Brian, but he's probably not even as handsome as as, as a lot of his brothers were. No, no. Well, I, you were, I know we had that long extended run TNA after the New Age Outlaws. You're the mm-hmm. TNA guy, so please inform me a little bit about Barbara. I, I just, I'll be honest with you, I wasn't watching TNA a lot of time, quite frankly, I was, I was raised in a family in the middle of my own career. Yeah, yeah, and this, the, he really came in at the time where they were still doing the weekly pay-per-view stuff, so... Mm-hmm. almost Early nobody on. was watching them right right and he came in and he went by the name bg james because i don't know why they didn't go by brian armstrong but i still remember him cutting the promo he said my mama called me brian gerard james so as far as i'm concerned that's my name here and he formed a stable with conan and our truth or ron the truth killings at the time and they were called three live crew of course a play on on two live crew and they were babyface mm-hmm. team pretty much the the whole time. They they won the NWA tag titles. I think uh, Ron won his second NWA title during this time. I think they, as a tag titles, I think they were even doing the Freebird bit for a while. And then a little bit later on, Billy Gunn would come in. Only of course he can't be known as Billy Gunn. He adopted the name Kip James. I don't know if Bob trained him, but I know he had that long history with the Armstrong family. So he took the name Kip James together. They're known as the, the James gang and later as the voodoo kin mafia. Cause you got to have the words, the, the, the letters VKM everywhere. Whenever Vince Russo's book uh, booking something. So yeah, you, funny. right, right. And that's really, they were the closest to being the new age outlaws when they were the voodoo kin mafia. They were basically trying to rekindle that DX flavor without actually using the words, the, the, the term DX. And I can understand why you would do that. I'm not blaming them for, for doing that. And again, they, they were both baby faces and heels at the time. They had a feud with Team 3D. Again, you get the WWE history between them. But that really summarizes their TNA run. Well, I, I know they first brought him in. This is coming from originally secondhand information, and then it was confirmed to me by Brian himself, <laughs> that when he first got brought in those early days when it was Bill Barrett, Burt Prentice, and Jerry Jarrett kind of all doing pay-per-views like you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember if it was AJ Styles or if it was David Young that told me where Brian was very frustrated because they wanted him be Brian Armstrong to wrestle, you know, to be Bob, essentially, which is the new version of Bob Armstrong. That and they didn't no give him the mic a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and, and he went off on creative in the locker room. And he's like, look, he's like, I'm the worst wrestler of my family. He goes, and it, I, this is not making any sense to me. You're not giving me any mic time. And he's like, Here's, I'm a guy who tried to get over on his wrestling ability for five years and was nothing, and then Vince McMahon stuck a microphone in my face to let me talk, and all of a sudden I was as over as anybody in the company. This is not this is not logic. That's what gets me over. You've got to get yeah. you know. And then when he got into in, into the three live crews, when he started getting mic time, and that's let's be three charismatic guys that can all talk. Mm-hmm. Ron, Conan, and Brian can all talk, so it made sense and it worked. But he had to fight for them. you. And it, that's. I guess that was high on TNA or, or made it a priority to watch outside of what was going on in my own personal life was like, here's a guy I know and a guy I like and a guy I, I respect and help me out. And I am a observer of the, to realize what he said is true. Here's a guy 
who didn't get over until you gave him mic time and just showed how good he could talk. And then you don't want him to talk when it's your company. You just want to rest. That's dumb. Yeah. That's like bringing Dusty Rhodes into your promotion and saying, Dusty, we want you to go fifth and then have a, we don't have any promo time for you. What? Right. And I, I mentioned that whole thing. I remember that promo where he rechristened himself BG James. Well, there you go. That, that was my biggest memory at the time was that promo of him talking about himself. I remember the promo. I certainly don't remember much in the way of matches he had at the time. Yeah, and like I said, a story I've heard, and then like I said, Brian confirmed this to me later on when I discussed it years later. He went off because that was the one where they're like, okay, here's the mic, talk. You saw the probe. It, it was so good, you remember it, what, 20 years later? Right, right. So, yeah, he wasn't wrong, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's not a rocket science. We sat there and just talked about the man's career, how he had kind of floundered as an underneath guy for six years in both WCW and WWF, and it had little to no mic time. They gave him a mic, and out, and he's out walking. He got as over as anybody that got me. Right. And not to uh, deter too much, but... That's a frustration a lot of guys have had. Steve Austin himself, his first few years in WWE, maybe his first year or so, they called him the ringmaster, and Ted DiBiase did his talking. It really wasn't until they did a bit where he was doing commentary, and he was just mm-hmm. going going a line a minute the way the way we know Austin can now, and that's really when it was like, okay, this guy can talk. And, 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 you know. and that just floors me because he didn't get a lot of mic time in the beginning in WCW either. He had Lady Blossom, but then when he started getting a mic time, he was really, really good. And and I dare to show you sometimes, ladies and gentlemen, how stubborn in the wrestling business. We we see potential in the talent, but we don't want them to be a copy of what they were somewhere else. So we'll mm-hmm. fight against that, even though it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Go right. back to Steve Austin's original entry into the business was that feud with Chris Adams, Lady Blossom, and Tony, who would be Chris's second wife. They go back then, it was brand new the business and Austin could cut a pro. And it's like WCW didn't see this, and it took him several years until they gave him promo time, and then he was good. Then he left, and then, like I said, WWE. Brian's the same way. Thank God for Steve Austin could talk and gave him a microphone as soon as he brought him into ECW. They were hilarious. Mm-hmm. But, but WCW didn't figure it out, and then Vince didn't figure it out for years, and then he gave him one, he got over, and then he gets TNA, and they have to figure it out. I'm like, that's just what it is sometimes in the wrestling right. business. It's like, you don't it, – it's – Throw that into the same category as why one company buying out another company and you see this as a fan potential for a money-making interpromotional feud and it never works because one promotion gets buried. Right. Take yeah. the invasion angle, take the Crockett's buying out UWF. It's the same mindset. I hate to say it because I'm part of the, the fraternity and part of that business, but sometimes our own arrogance, yeah. our own stubbornness. Right. But to wind up the talk on, on Brian, he did return to WWE when he inducted Bob into the WWE Hall of Fame um, in, in 2010, I believe that was. And he did appear 11. sporadically. I thought it was 11. Could, could be. He appeared on camera sporadically as Road Dog over the next few years. He reunited with Billy Gunn as the New Age Outlaws. And they even won the WWE Tag Team Championship again in 2014. And now Brian, to this day, works in WWE as a producer. I think he works on the SmackDown brand. The lead point. producer for SmackDown. He, he, if That's I understand it right, that means he's kind of the guy behind the camera, kind of telling guys what to do for their skits and such. And the guy would like be gorilla when they're doing tapings and stuff, kind of directing traffic. It's amazing too because in that run that he had, he was very openly critical about some some of the behind the scenes stuff at WWE. And what we didn't know. At the time, he's been very candid about now, is that Brian had a lot of demons. And yeah. that was affecting, I think, some of his mindset because I, I think Vince will solve this. Brian had. Mm-hmm. And they were calling him on it. And Brian, like a lot of people that have problems like that, didn't want to admit it at the time. But I think, isn't Brian another one of those examples of 
one of the guys that says, like, if you've ever worked for me, even if it was just one match and you have a drug issue or an alcohol issue, we'll pay for your rehab. Yeah. And Brian yeah. was one of those guys that did that, and that's why he got back into good graces and on good terms again and apologized. Yeah, I believe I believe that's true because Vince has always been good about trying to help people out with their their addictions if they've worked for him in the I past. I know that falls that category as well. It, it's <laughs> we've talked about a lot on this podcast for all the crap Vince gets, and trust me, Vince deserves it. He does do some good things. All right, well, that's going to bring us to the end of our discussion on the Armstrong family. This is classic wrestling memories, of course. If you're hearing us for the first time, we are all over the place on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. You can find us on social media at uh, Behind the Squared Circle on Facebook. So, Train, is there anything else you wanted to add on the Armstrong family before we wrap up? Yeah, let me tell a little quick story about personal story about Bullet Bob and the whole Armstrong family. I worked a show early 2000s, and Bob was on the show as a veteran, and he actually worked. I was amazed. I had met Bob. I was amazed. Here's a man in his 60s. My God, he, <laughs> mm-hmm. he went out and he cut a promo. My God, he could still cut a promo. And I want to say he tagged with Scott that night. Might have been, might have been Brad. And they worked with some of the guys there for the. And they did the old arm ringer spot where you you snatch a guy's arm and you ring it around. Yeah. Oh my God, the way Bob Armstrong, the way his body tensed up, and you really believe this guy was going to rip Bob Bob Armstrong's arm out of his socket. And I sat there and I looked at I can't even remember who was standing next to me at the curtain. I looked at him and said, "That is just a lost art form." And the Armstrongs and my dealings with them were real people. They were real people who just happened to be blessed with some size and athletic. And they're good people. They're family people. And I know the Hearts are more well-known. I know the Guerreros are more well-known. I know the Von Erichs are more well-known. But I don't think that should be any indictment on how how influential and important the Armstrong family was to the wrestling. It's, they are, in my one of the one of the top family that we've ever had in the wrestling business and the wrestling business is better because the Armstrongs. Yeah. I I think it's, it's, I I think you could say you kind of can't tell the story of the history of professional wrestling without at least mentioning the family. Yep. And uh, I've I've said it before. I'll say it again. You do not understand unless you were in the Southern territories back in the 60s, 70s, early eighties, how old were Bob Armstrong? He had all the tools. And he was a guy that just never really made it on a national scene, partly because it wasn't really a national business at the time, and partly because, like I said earlier, I think he just he liked where he lived. He found a nice home, school for his kids. His wife liked it, and he was going to stay. Why not? He was making money. He was over. He had all the tools. He had all four of those tools we talked about. He passed them on to his sons. Each one of them had them at a varying level. Um, but that arm ringer and how he sold it, I think is everything you need to know about the Armstrongs and why they were important to wrestling. It's he's selling, not doing some fantastic flippy, you know? Mm-hmm. It's a time when kayfabe is broken, yet he's still got these people to suspend their discipline. He's in his 60s, and he's still in shape and looks. He's there. There, There is nothing bad you want me to say about our family. They're nothing but a credit to our business. And I am thankful that I got to meet them all and know them and take advice from them, and I am thankful that I grew up when I did in where I grew up in the South to see them do their magic. Um, that day, Bob Armstrong is on that list of guys who inspired Crazy Train to want to become a professional. He is on that list, without a doubt. And it kind of gave me a little bit of chills there, just, just there, uh, talking about it. But like I, like I said, if you want to get in touch with us, you can 
drop us a line at classicaggressivememories.com. You can get on the social media at Behind the Squared Circle or uh, TWBP Show for the Wrestling Brethren because we are part of the Wrestling Brethren Podcast Network. And Train, if anybody wants to get a hold of you to talk about wrestling or comic books or any of the, any of the other shows we have, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That's pretty much my handle across all social platforms. Uh, you check out a social platform and put that in the search, and it comes up. That's me. So I'm um, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, Minds, uh, Parlor, you name it. I'm pretty much across all social media platforms. Uh, we are going to be recording in the next week uh, and examining the dead. Uh, we're going to have the aforementioned uh, Dan the Dragon Wilson or the Reverend Dan Wilson, depending on when you knew him, uh, talking about holiday horror movies. So look forward to that. Of course, our regular Geekville stuff will be coming up. Uh, we got a big surprise if we can get extended for the end of the year. And as, as I often do, I will plug one of my Spotify playlists, yet another social media outlet that I have a presence on where my handle is crazytrain underscore JB. Uh, with it being Christmas time, uh, I have a Christmas playlist, which is a little bit eclectic. I'll have Seth post that in the show notes. Check it out. Um, if you're looking for a decent playlist, uh, you know, and you're tired of what they play on constant loop on your local radio station for Christmas. No, all I want for Christmas is you, right? That's on there, but <laughs> so is I am Santa Claus. And yeah. <laughs> Grandma got run over by a reindeer. So, okay. <laughs> okay. It's eclectic, okay? <laughs> all right, we're going to turn out the lights here in the Geekville Radio studios. We'll talk to you folks soon. And uh, again, let us know if there's anything you want to hear. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved. Welcome to Armstrong Avenue, Armstrong's Electric Avenue. What you're looking at now is my son Brad pumping a little iron, and I'm sure the road warriors are familiar with pumping iron. My name is Bob Armstrong, and no matter what you've heard about the Armstrongs, when we meet the road warriors, there'll be no more Mr. Nice Guy. You know, I've seen film clips of the road warriors, and they're big, muscular gentlemen, no doubt about it. And what Brad and I do is come out here and pump iron because we like to be powerful, too. We got about 230 pounds apiece, and we're packed right and tight. As soon as we finish here, we're going to hit out back. We're going to get in that mat, and we're going to do what we call agility drills. Up, down, in, out, back, forth, round and round, because that's the way to beat the road warriors. Speed and mobility. So we've combined a combination here of agility and power. I've heard the road warriors making some bad remarks about the Armstrong team, something about decapitation, pulling off limbs. Well, what are you going to do with a tree trunk, brother? That don't look like a limb to me. And these ain't exactly toothpicks hanging on Brad's shoulders. One thing about it, from what I've seen of you boys wearing them black slick leather britches, a good old All-American right cross, when your fanny hits that mat, you liable to slide third row ringside. And one thing I want you to know about the Armstrong right off the bat, that we're a couple of southern-bred, southern-born, thoroughbred racehorses. 
And one thing you definitely ought to know is that jackasses don't run with race horses. So remember this. Like I said, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Armstrong, Bullet Bob, Bad News Brad, we will see you soon. Then there'll be no more bull jiving, no more talking about this and that. We'll be action nose to nose and toes to toes. And our motto is, sticks and stones may break your bones, but we're going to do our best to break your head. Right, Brad? That's exactly right. You know, like you've always said and you've always taught me, Dad, they're big and bad, but they can be had. Amen, brother. See you soon.